Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper. And I am the second host, Aaron Maté. And thanks for tuning in, everybody. And remember to go to usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com to support the show and get bonus content. Yeah, you'll get an extended interview and you'll also get our weekly feature, Thursday Throwdown, which is where you get a midweek dose of media madness. We, re- we react to media clips and it's always a good time. And in fact, I'm going to give you a preview of one of our Thursday throwdowns for this week. Wilson, throw up this image. Aaron, do you know what that is? Uh, it looks like a 80s rock band has been super superimposed with the faces of uh, Joe Biden and Zelensky. And I see Lindsey Graham. Victoria Newland and uh, Chris Christie. Chris Christie, yeah. Okay. Wait, you say it looks superimposed? Doesn't I thought I I did this myself. I thought it looked seamless and totally realistic. I thought you were going to think they were just those rock and rollers that they were in a band. Uh, I guess I'm just really I just have a crazy eye. I'm, I'm sure the average viewer would. There's no way they could tell the difference between this and a real band. Yes. Right. True. Yeah. And if you want to get why I made this and what this uh, represents, what this captures, please do become subscribers at usefulidiots.substack.com, usefulidiots.locals.com. It's going to be worth it, I promise. <laughs> All right. So should we get to the four basic food groups? Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? Yes. For Democrats suck, we have a case of straight up elder abuse where you have Diane Feinstein, 90 years old, suffering a series of health issues, is being kept in the Senate by Democrats for unexplained reasons and accordingly she keeps being subjected to this really uh uncomfortable ongoing uh public humiliation so here is her latest health incident it's a fall and this is fox news reporting it some breaking news just in tmz is reporting that senator diane feinstein from california was treated at a hospital apparently she fell in her home and that can happen, of course. She is, as you know, um, in her 90s. Um, it reportedly happened yesterday in San Francisco. Of course, that's her hometown. That's where she lives. She hasn't been well for quite some time. That's right. And um, there's even questions now about power of attorney for her. And there are some people, especially Democrats, who think yeah. that it would be responsible for her to resign. And maybe her family would look at this and say, do we really want to keep putting her up to this? Or, but maybe she wants to keep well, going it, back it was to a big deal for her to make that trip back to Washington, D.C. Remember a couple of weeks ago, she recently yeah. turned 90 years old. Uh, she had been out of the Senate for three months because of shingles. Uh, so this is another, it's, mm-hmm. it's a tough moment here for a 90-year-old senator. The power attorney thing is a reference to the fact that her daughter now has power of attorney over her because there's an ongoing dispute over Senator Feinstein's uh, massive fortune because she's also one of the richest people in Congress. And the reason why she's being kept in the Senate, although it's officially left unexplained, it's very clear. And Glenn Greenwald points it out. Here he is. The only reason Feinstein, 90 years old, is still in the Senate, despite barely knowing where she is and her daughter having power of attorney over her life, is Nancy Pelosi fears California Governor Gavin Newsom will name Congressmember Barbara Lee to replace her, making it harder for Adam Schiff to beat Lee. Pure elder abuse. Because yes, Feinstein, when she officially steps down, whenever that is, her Senate seat will become vacant. There's a race to replace her, and Adam Schiff and Barbara Lee are the main candidates. And Nancy Pelosi fears that if Gavin Newsom names a replacement now, 
which would be Barbara Lee because he's promised to name a uh, black woman to the vacant seat, then that would advantage Barbara Lee in any kind of contest against Adam Schiff, who is her favorite. So for the purpose of helping Adam Schiff, Democrats are committing elder abuse. And this is not just Glenn's speculation. This was reported by Politico recently. Here's what Politico said. If DiFi resigns now, there is an enormous probability that Barbara Lee gets appointed. Thus, it makes it harder for Schiff, one Pelosi family confidant told Politico, adding that the relationship between Pelosi, her daughter, and the senator is being kept under wraps and very, very closely held. So that is a Pelosi family confidant confirming that the reason they're committing elder abuse is to help Adam Schiff. Wow, so much for listening to black women like Barbara Lee. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for all the talk about Democrats empowering black voices and lifting up black voices, here is a chance to appoint this very experienced member of Congress, Barbara Lee, a very brave person. She was the only person who voted against the uh, endless war and terror resolution after 9-11, has a lot of accomplishments. Here's a chance to put her in the Senate and Pelosi would rather commit elder abuse for the sake of preventing Barbara Lee from being in that seat, just to help Adam Schiff, one of the biggest warmongers in Congress. Right. And that is your weekly example of Democrat suckage. So for my Republican suck, here is a heartwarming story about how corporate cash is derailing a train safety bill. This is from an article by David Sirota at The Lever. Six months ago, Donald Trump did a photo op in East Palestine and then demanded Congress pass a rail safety bill. Then the company that made the toxic chemical in the disaster gave $2 million to Trump's party. And guess what? His party's lawmakers are now blocking the bill. So this is just an example of very overt corruption. And uh, Occidental Petroleum, the manufacturer, has been lobbying on rail and tank car safety and its lobbying group, the American Chemistry Council, which also donated $250,000 to the main house GOP super back pushed for changes, weakening the bill. And now they are getting that and Republicans are blocking the bill. I mean, Trump really had the advantage there because the Biden administration's handling of that spill was so awful. Yeah. But here, all it took was $2 million, it sounds like, to buy off Trump and the Republicans. And now they're certainly not going to take up the opportunity to, uh, you know, show up Biden when it comes to that. East Palestine disaster. Right. Except for this is reported by the lever. I don't think, sadly, they'll get that much coverage. Uh, maybe it will. I hope it will. But they may still survive uh, winning the optics war on this issue. We'll see. We'll have to see. And this is an example of Republicans sucking on an issue where Democrats suck also. But it's particularly egregious. So we'll, we'll file it under Republican suck. All right. For Isn't That Weird... Let's check out this footage recently from New York City. So for people just listening, uh, there is a hot dog stand on fire. Yes, on the corner of 45th Street, a hot dog stand is up in flames and everyone's just passing by as if it's normal. Yep, just a normal day in New York City. So yeah, I mean, in in fairness to the passers-by, I'm not sure what I would do if I saw a hot dog stand on fire. True. It's not, you know, unless you have a, a fire hose. On you. On you. There's not much you can do. Um, I mean, maybe it's a good opportunity to get some barbecued Franks. But um, aside That's from true. that. If you like your hot dogs extra browned. 
Yeah, who? How often do you see a hot dog stand on fire? I don't know. It doesn't happen every day. It doesn't happen every day. It reminds me of um, Arrested Development, where in the banana stands, uh, they set the banana stand on fire. There's always money in the banana stand. That's exactly right. until you set yeah. on fire. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. yeah. Want to hear a little hot dog related anecdote? Kind of cute. Sure. So when I was younger, I grew up on the Upper West Side, and there was Grace Papaya on 72nd Street, and I'd be in my stroller, and I guess I really liked hot dogs because I'd be in my stroller asleep. And then I pass by that hot dog uh, place and I go, I'd wake up and go, I fell from thing because I guess I couldn't say my S's at that point. So just a little heartwarming hot dog story to, to leave you with a better uh, taste in your mouth, so to speak, than the hot dog stand on fire story. You could have been a actor in like an ad campaign for hot dogs I know. Like could have been the slogan like i smell something you know that yeah. could have been that could have been a hit it's true and you of course aaron you know that as a child actor i'm coming from experience this is this is my lived experience talking yeah yes. exactly your lived experience yeah well uh for isn't that terrible let's just go to the videotape but trigger warning this is a subject that is near and dear to my heart i'm a big uh advocate on this issue uh let's take a look Shark attack here in New York City, a woman seriously injured after being bitten in the water off Rockaway Beach, the first confirmed shark bite in the city since the 1950s. Beaches are closed temporarily while they search the waters, and it comes as the number of attacks and sightings is rising nationwide. ABC's Trevor Alt on Rockaway Beach. Tonight, the first confirmed shark attack in decades at New York City's Rockaway Beach. First responders delivering life-saving care after a woman was severely bitten. You said there might have been a shark attack? Possible shark attack. Authorities say the 65-year-old was swimming alone when she was attacked. Lifeguards reportedly hearing her scream for help, wounds visible on her left leg, emergency workers applying a tourniquet. It was a female that was bitten. She was bleeding, unconscious, taken out of the water. Today, officials shutting down the beach to swimmers and surfers, launching drones and helicopters in search of the predator. Never heard that before, first time. Especially around this area, I know people get drowned, but not sharks coming after them. It's first time. And officials also today temporarily shutting down another nearby beach after a separate shark sighting this morning. Nearly half of all confirmed shark attacks in New York's recent history have happened in the past two years. You know, I can't help but feel partially responsible for that because we talked about my trip, my birthday trip to Rockaway Beach, the Rockaways. Remember Fort Tilden? Mm -hmm. um, and we talked about you, 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 I mean, you should feel responsible too because you praised Fort Tilden. I praised Jacob Reese. We, we probably helped popularize those destinations. So we brought people into harm's way. Now, luckily, I feel not responsible at the same time. I feel kind of um, uh, like a bit of a savior because I spent a lot of my time warning against uh, sharks and uh, sharkaganda, which is pervasive. Big shark. We see a lot of footage that I think uh, kind of downplays the dangers of sharks. They're sensationalized as if they're not a real threat. They're kind of turned into entertainment. We see something called Shark Week, which I believe was just last week or a couple of weeks ago. I'm glad that people are being exposed to the risks of sharks. They are pervasive. I would like them to be made extinct. Uh, I understand that could be bad for the uh, food chain, but I think it may be worth it. They're also really ugly. And they're wherever you go because I'm going to Maine next week and there was a, a shark uh, sighting in Maine. So I don't feel safe. Well, I'm glad that 
the victim here was okay. Yeah. And but I'm also Katie, I salute your courage in even talking about this issue because I know how triggering sharks are for you. So the right. fact that even you could air this segment is heroic. I mean, to be, I do have an irrational fear of sharks. This is totally true. If I'm in the bath or in a swimming pool and I and I'm think about sharks, I get scared. I have to come out, uh, uh, come to the surface. That's not rational because there are not sharks in swimming pools or baths. But my fear, more generally, of sharks in oceans is very justified. You know, I've never seen Jaws. I started watching. I couldn't finish it. You've never seen it. I think that should be required viewing, honestly, in schools. I don't know if they still have this at Universal Studios. There's a you do like the tram ride and then you pass by a Jaws Lake and then Jaws comes up and like, you know, comes out of the water and and like snatches at the tram and, and everyone gets scared. I thought it was really cool though as a kid when I saw it. Yeah. Over the time. I don't know if they still have that. Well, because you've been subjected to uh Sharkaganda. Sharkaganda. So you're not aware yeah. of I'm that. brainwashed. I'm you've brainwashed, been brainwashed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So those are your four basic food groups. Well, I'm very excited about today's show. Uh, it is going to be a fascinating discussion and debate between Jennifer Briney and Michael Tracy about the Trump indictment. Jennifer Briney is the host of the Congressional Dish podcast and co-host of We're Not Wrong. And Michael Tracy is a journalist who writes at mtracy.substack.com. And really, Katie, this is an extension of the debate that began on Useful Idiots when we had a fiery exchange on Monday morning. Civil, over what, fiery. Oh, it was it was fiery. It was explosive. And the debate is whether Trump's actions around January 6th that he's now indicted for, whether they were criminal or whether they were insane, but totally kosher legal-wise. So that's what we're going to discuss today in this continuation of the debate that Useful Idiots has started. Yes. Over January 6th. So it's really a proxy debate. That's right. Yeah. We yeah. we both brought on proxies to advance our position. So we'll yeah. see who's right. And yeah. we're doing this, of course, not with legal experts, but with two journalists. But uh But they've hey. looked at the legal issues. They yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's go to the debate. It was a debate. <laughs> Jen and Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. My pleasure as always. <laughs> Everyone has seen lawyers debate this on cable news. We thought let's get four non-lawyers together and yeah. debate Trump's indictment. So Michael, let me start with you. You are skeptical of this indictment. Give us the reasons why. Well, because it's the latest iteration of a trend that has been very much evident now for several months since the first indictment of Trump was issued in April in New York State, which is that prosecutors in multiple jurisdictions are clearly attempting to conjure extremely novel theories of various criminal statutes and the, and the applicability of those statutes to various offenses in order to target and charge Trump. Now, a hallmark of you know, criminal law, at least criminal law when it's rationally, even-handedly applied, is that conduct which could not have been reasonably foreseen to be criminalizable under a given statute ought not to then be criminalized under that statute. Meaning you have to be able to predict that your conduct is a criminal offense or a reasonable person should be able to predict 
such. And yet now we have Trump, you know, being criminalized for defrauding himself by mislabeling allegedly a reimbursement to, of a payment to Storm, Stormy Daniels um, in his own corporate ledgers. That's now concocted into a wild new theory, never even been tr- attempted before in New York State. Then we had the Presidential Records Act being aggressively transformed into a criminal matter by the DOJ's National Security Division, which you might recall Trump always didn't have the most collegial uh, interactions with when he was president. So even though that the SP, even though the application of the Espionage Act in that case seems more straightforward to a lot of people, the genesis of that case is actually very novel and is indicative of again, sort of a, a particular vehemence in the prosecutor's pursuit of Trump individually. And now this latest indictment is probably the most extreme example of this trend, which is that they have posited a conspiracy that encompasses a whole slew of political activity and political speech um, between November of 2020 and January of 2021 that uh, is supposed to add up to Trump having been uh, feloniously liable for attempting to uh, you know, de- defraud the government, which is incredibly vague, and then also using a, um, they're also using a Civil War era conspiracy statute to claim that he is disenfranchising a millions of voters, which frankly didn't happen per the ordinary understanding of what it means to disenfranchise voters, which is deprive them of the ability to vote. No one was deprived of the ability to vote by Trump. All the votes were certified and the die had been cast by January 6th. So there's a lot of other elements of this, but I guess in broad strokes, it's this kind of prosecutorial creativity um, and prosecutorial uh, zeal that's tailored specifically to criminalizing Trump's conduct that I think is a uh, fairly portentous uh, omen for what, you know, the government can get away with when it's trying to put people in prison. All right, Jen, uh, you have covered this case as well. You have a different take. What do you think of the indictment? I do. So um, I can understand and relate to the suspicion when it comes to seeing yet another Trump indictment, because the points that you make, Michael, about the first two indictments are well taken. The Stormy Daniels one, are we actually going to prosecute campaign finance violations, considering we have a system that's basically based on bribery? And then it does seem like a lot of people walk out of the White House with classified documents. So I'm with you on that. This latest one, though, is different. And the reason is it's really based on the overall conspiracy to obstruct the certification in Congress. And when I read that indictment, they really take one story and have four charges that are a part of that story. And central to that story are the documents that were certifying the election in seven states for Trump, even though he lost those seven states. And so You know, that was something that had to be done with, he had to essentially trick people 
in the Republican Party, including the head of the Republican Party. Trump was personally on the phone call when Ronna Romney McDaniels was enticed to collect people in seven states, dozens of people, to sign their names onto these election certification documents. And I've worked as an election poll worker in three different states in this country. And on the bottom of the totem pole, when it comes to the, the documents, um, even for me, I had to swear an oath in all of those states. And I was told in no uncertain terms that I could be prosecuted if in any way I messed with the vote tally. And so to go and in seven states create these documents that said that he won when he didn't, those are the most important documents in this process. And you're absolutely right that they were certified on December 14th. But there is a process in that congressional ceremony that took place on January 6th where those certifications could be challenged. And in our nation's history, right around the Civil War, which was, you know, created the Electoral Count Act, which was poorly written, possibly unconstitutional. But um, back then, there were two slates of electors that were sent in for three states because it was unclear who was governing those states. That was not the case in 2023. There were people that signed their name to those documents that knew what they were doing was wrong. In fact, people in Pennsylvania insisted that it said on those documents that they signed that these would only be turned in in the case that Trump won a lawsuit that would have indicated that the you know, the um, election flipped his way. And this is in 2020, right? This is in 2020. Yeah. yeah. So there are people that are currently being prosecuted for signing those documents. None of them in Pennsylvania because they actually got that in writing. But there were a lot of people that were tricked into signing those. And where this really jumps the shark into becoming a crime is that they turned those in to Congress and the executive branch to be used on January 6th. And if you look at it in that regard, that those documents were there to cause chaos on January 6th, to cause confusion enough in seven states to either have one of two things happen. One of the plans as laid out by John Eastman was they wanted Vice President Pence to say, we don't know which one of these slates of electors is accurate, so we need to set aside these seven states. And when they did that, that would change the threshold in the Electoral College for winning which would give Trump, if those particular seven states were set aside, he would be ahead by 10 and he could win the presidency. If that didn't work, the other plan was for Pence to say, according to the, the 12th Amendment, we can't certify this. The election would then move into the House of Representatives, in which case the Republicans, had they voted on party lines because they vote by state, they would have had 26 states and he could have won the presidency. That also brings me to that whole part of the indictment where they said they violated people's right to vote and have their vote be counted. Had either of those plans worked, they would have, I don't want to say disenfranchised because that's taking away people's right to vote. People did Which is what Jack Smith said, by the way. Jack Smith misleadingly, when he was introducing the indictment on TV, that was the first thing he alleged, that Trump was guilty of committing a criminal conspiracy to disenfranchise millions of voters, which is just not accurate per what most people would commonly understand disenfranchisement to mean. So, it's anyway. an unfortunate term, and I'm with you that I don't think it's the accurate one, but it would absolutely affect people's ability to have their vote be counted. Because had the seven states be tossed aside, you're taking away the right to have your vote be counted from everyone in seven states. And had the House of Representatives voted for the presidency, then all of us, except for those serving in the House, would have had their 
the votes not be counted. So I can see the charges if you look at the entire story as a whole. If you look at it piecemeal, it's harder. But the conspiracy is easier to see if you look at it the way it was written. You have to read all 40 pages and see them as as one long story with four charges attached. And Jen, one follow-up. How did Trump trick these Republicans into basically giving him fake votes, into trying to give him votes to make it look as if he had won those states that he did not win? It's a great question. So he actually enlisted Ronna Romney McDaniels. She's the head of the Republican National Committee. And, and Romney's they, niece, right? Yeah, Romney's, Romney's niece. niece. Mm-hmm. So um, what she testified to the January 6th committee was that she was told that there were lawsuits pending in these seven states. And so what they wanted to do Which was have- Yeah, there absolutely were. And so what she was told was, we want to have these slate of electors. We want to have these documents on standby in case we win any of these lawsuits. And in case we win these lawsuits and we find out that the results of the election would have been different and went in our favor, favor that's when we'll turn these in. So where's the so, trickery? Because they turn them in anyway. And there's plenty of evidence like in writing that these people, the, the co-conspirators, always intended to, to turn them in. So that's where the trick is. There were people that testified to the January 6th committee who said, had they known that these documents were going to be turned in anyway, despite what the lawsuit said, they never would have participated in this. Okay. Well, I mean, it's not trickery to posit that the final date at which certification, un until which certification can be contested of electoral votes is January 6th. Now, that's sort of a novel theory. I never particularly bought into it. Um, my understanding, not that I'm a you know great constitutional scholar or anything, but my you know layman's understanding was that once the electoral college meets on the designated date, in uh, which in 2020 was December 14th, issues its certified votes, then that is the date at which Biden was formally elected president. But I also think that countervailing theories under the Constitution, which at least invoke the Constitution as a basis for the articulation of these theories, uh, aren't necessarily criminal offenses. Like, it's not necessarily a criminal conspiracy to have a view of constitutional law as pertains to counting electoral votes that differs from mine or differs from Joe Biden's. Um, now, I, I want to go back to something that you said earlier on in your statement, which is that you had been a poll worker in the past in multiple states mm -hmm. and you had to sign a piece of paper that acknowledged that to uh, tamper with the vote tallies was a criminal offense well sure nobody contests that i don't think the issue here is that there were no vote tallies ever tampered with it's not as though trump directed anybody to go into the tabulation uh processes in each individual states and like fabricate vote totals Trump was pursuing, at least this is what is criminalized under the indictment, what Trump was pursuing was a tactic after the votes had already been duly tallied. So in other words, it wasn't as though, it wasn't like this wasn't a 2016 era theory where supermajorities of Democrats were convinced that Russia had literally hacked into the voting machines and falsely spat out a result that Trump had won certain states. 
No, this was after there, there was the certifications were in. There was a theory put forth by this guy Eastman and others that under the 12th Amendment, it was viable for rival slates of electors to be submitted to uh, for counting by the president of the Senate, who is the, the vice president. Now, the, the idea that that is trickery or a forgery or a criminal conspiracy just doesn't seem very plausible. I mean, for one thing, the attorney general at the time of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, who was then elected governor the following year, was like almost every other Democratic Party elected official, badgered relentlessly to criminally investigate the Trump electors who submitted this document to the National Archives and to the vice president. And he determined that there was no valid way in which that the submission of those documents could be prosecutable on the ground that it constituted some sort of forgery. Because it wasn't like this was done in secret. It was done, it was a, it was a public act. I mean, mailing a document to the National Archives and mailing a document to the vice president is not like a surreptitious act that's being shielded from public scrutiny because they're aware that they've committed a forgery. They did it in the open because they had this countervailing theory as to the constitutional uh, law mechanisms in place governing the counting of electoral votes. The point is, even if you're of the mind, as I was at the time, that the theories being put forward by John Eastman, uh, by the Trump electors, and uh, by lots of Republicans, that uh, rival slates of electors could be validly submitted and potentially even counted by the vice president. Um, if you find that to be an off-the-wall theory and not well-founded, I agree with that. But you have to make a distinction between a, theory, a constitutional theory not being well-founded or being objectionable politically and on you know, constitutional grounds, and then that act being a criminal conspiracy Mm-hmm. That all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jack Smith decided to introduce his theory of, in order to criminalize, that had never even been contemplated before in all of U.S. history since the statute was first introduced in 1866. So well, that, I mean, to be fair, we, we've never had a president try to stay president by, you know, messing with the Electoral College. So I don't see how these statutes could have been applied to something similar, considering nothing like well, this has I mean, happened before. It, not that this was the quote saying, because I know if you mention any precedent or you mention any previous occurrences of potentially relevant events, you're always accused of what suggesting event? that the things are the same. So uh-huh. no, I'm not. The, what I'm about to cite is not the same as what happened in 2020, but it's still worth bearing in mind, which is that there was this whole plot that was furiously promoted in December of 2016 for electors to vote for somebody other than Donald Trump, even when they hailed from states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, et cetera, that had been won by Trump through the popular vote count. Um, and Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, as well as her uh, you know, fixer, John Podesta, put out statements in December of 2016 saying, oh, yeah, all these electors should be very gently and innocently briefed by the CIA about what had been leaked shortly before the Electoral College was convened about Trump allegedly having been maliciously installed into power by a fraudulent scheme hatched by Vladimir Putin. Yeah, um, and so, I, I'm so, with so you on you the rest of So you easily retroactively criminalize that conduct if there was a political will to do so, but there, there isn't. 
So it's not the same. Here's where like all, all of this stuff. It's not the same. <laughs> well, it's not the same because what happened in 2016 is speech where Trump jumped the shark was in creating these fake documents. Now, if you look at the paper trail of a election, you have the people like me in all of our little precincts and we are collecting the votes. And at the end of this process, they all go up to these election certification documents. Those are the most important documents. They are saying that I did my job in this precinct. Other people did their jobs in this one. We've all certified our votes. And now the whole state has collected our votes. And this is the winner. The Trump campaign created documents that said that he won when the rest of us, our vote counts, said that he did not submitted them and then tried to get the vice president to use those documents to cause enough chaos in Congress that there were two paths where he remains president despite losing the popular vote. The Clinton campaign, they were shady, man, but they didn't do that. The documents are key to this case. There's also one other part of this case that no one is talking about, and that is a part where when they were actually going through the process of going through the courts, all their different lawsuits, there was an affidavit that, the affidavit that Trump signed that had a bunch of election fraud claims that his lawyer told him in writing weren't true, and he turned that in also. So it's you're not allowed to falsify documents in the United States. You're not allowed to lie on legal documents and turn them in as a regular person or as president of the United States. And again, there was this massive pressure campaign to get legislatures to change their vote counts so that those documents would say that he won. And when that didn't work, then they actually got people to create fake documents that went along with the real certifications. As you said, this was all certified on December 14th, but there was a process in Congress. Like I don't think Eastman's theory was bananas at all. In fact, I think it's kind of brilliant. He looked at our laws. They're criminalizing it. Well, what they're criminalizing is the acting on it. No, they're the not just criminalizing that- the acting on it. That's what you're missing here, or that's what's being missed here, I think. They're not just criminalizing the action or the conduct. The reason why there's this ascription of a wide-scale conspiracy is because the conspiracy encompasses a whole range of alleged criminal conduct, including the speech, which is cited as an element of the overall conspiracy in the indictment. So even if you want to claim that the conduct itself even is what is really at issue here in terms of a criminal offense, I would probably contest that as well. But it's almost moot because that's not what the indictment limits itself to. There's a reason why it goes through in laborious detail statements that Trump made, whether it was tweets criticizing Pennsylvania legislators or uh, disagreeing in public with the Secretary of State of Georgia, all these instances of speech are listed as components of the wider conspiracy. Yeah, so, they show motive and intent. Yeah, they are a part of it. He's not right, so they're being indicted speech. for that speech. No, yes, he he's is. not indicted for the speech. But if I if I were to stab you 15 times and you survive, it's still a crime that I stabbed you. And if they found out that I told Katie and Aaron that I want to stab you, those statements would be presented at trial. So all of the times that Trump said, I want you to find the votes. I want you to bring back the legislature so that they can 
check out the votes one more time and make sure that the electors are for me. Every time he says that, that goes to motive and intent. Again, you have to look at the entire plan because if you take things here and there, if you just look at the statements, I can understand why you'd be afraid that this is about freedom of speech. But the indictment itself is about obstructing that certification. It's about a conspiracy and it's about making it possible that millions of votes would not have counted in that election. He was not indicted for inciting anything, which was, you know, that impeachment, that second impeachment was all about speech. That was garbage. Yeah, the, the this is not that. The sole article of impeachment, people forget this because it was rushed through and I don't think anybody really read the text. But if you go back and read the text of the second impeachment, there was one sole article of impeachment that was proffered against Trump and it was incitement of insurrection. That and obstruction of justice. But yeah, it was a garbage well, no, it was impeachment. Only, it was only one article. Well, it was a garbage impeachment because as you said, it was all about what he said to incite the riot. Right. But at the time, they didn't have the information about these documents. They didn't have the information about how all those Republicans were roped into signing their names to documents saying that Trump won states that he lost. The Democrats and their infinite wisdom decided to impeach first and investigate second. I think the impeachment could have gone differently if they had this information. But those documents, they are central to this indictment in a way that they weren't in the impeachment. And the speech, I mean, everything he said just goes to why he did it. This is a gentle, it's like you're saying because the Trump camp submitted fraudulent documents to the U.S. government, that that's criminal right there. Just as like if uh, I, you know, someone submitted uh, a document to the government lying about their Tax. whatever, their taxes Tax or something, returns, yeah. that would be criminal. Yeah. I, okay. Yeah, I think that's kind of obvious because I, I just keep looking at it. Had I done the same thing as just some poll worker, um, I could have gone to jail. So if I were to turn in the top documents certifying the whole state with wrong information, I don't see how that's not a crime. And the fact that it's central to this indictment and the fact that they did intend for those to be used on January 6th to cause chaos, to disrupt the certification from happening... That's why I think the documents are just so key to all of this. And I that's why to, it makes it different from 2016. The 2016 stuff, the Hillary people were trying to encourage faithless electors. And we've had them in our past. But encouraging someone to do something and turning in falsified documents as real, it's a different thing. Well, there's a lot of encouragement well, cited in the indictment that's supposedly not criminal conduct. Can I just address really quickly this analogy that's really fallacious that people use constantly that I think is just completely wrongheaded, which is that you say, oh, the analogy here is if I tell Aaron and Katie that I plan to murder you, and then that's cited as evidence in a, in a, in a criminal charge that I intended to murder you after I murder you. Well, the reason why that's cited as pursuant to your criminal conduct is because the ultimate aim is that you murdered me. Like the, the crime there is pretty clear, whereas the end result of what this supposed conspiracizing was trying to accomplish in the case of the 2020 election stuff is not anywhere near as clear cut a crime. Um, so yeah, really? you, 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 you don't have a First Amendment, so you don't have a First Amendment right to threaten to murder me, but you, you probably did have a First Amendment right prior to August of 2023 to say that we're going to have a new a novel constitutional theory whereby we submit rival slates of electors so the, the the analogy just doesn't hold up and also in terms of the fraudulence or the falsification of the documents no they were they were submitted with the understanding that they would be rival 
slates of electors. And they it were not certified by the governors. These were not real certifications. But the theory they was that the, the the theory was that this that that the basis for the drafting of those documents was that they were they had the authority of the state legislatures. They now, did. whether they did or didn't, that's contestable. But you're criminalizing it, or it's being criminalized rather than being a matter of political debate. It shouldn't be a matter of. Cr- political debate. It's not a debatable thing that they turned in fake certifications that were being used, hopefully in their mind on January 6th, in lieu of the real ones. That's not a debate. That's not a political thing. That's an actual piece of paper. It said Trump won, even though he didn't. And then the ultimate crime, the murder, in my analogy, is a man who lost an election remaining president. I mean, it's, I know that the word coup is not perfect here, but it, kind of is the crime here. It is a person who lost a democratic election who was doing everything he could to get whatever chaos he needed to cause to stay president. I mean, that's the murder here. That's the underlying crime. Michael, help me out with something here because I want to stay in your camp desperately, but I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pulled into Jen's a little bit. And that's because of my, you know, strong... Uh, views about Russiagate, where there, I do think there was fraud of the government that I'm not sure was free speech or not. So, for example, when the Clinton campaign submitted fake claims to the FBI about like a, a Trump-Russia bank server communications channel, the Alpha Bank thing, that's what Michael Sussman, the Clinton lawyer, submitted to the FBI. That was fake. And the Steele dossier was also generated by the Clinton campaign and that with the aim of make, getting its way to the FBI. Um was still even briefing an FBI agent personally about this and, and giving him his dossier. Is that not an attempt to defraud the U.S. government with fake documents? And would that not be criminal? And if that was criminal, then why wouldn't Trump submitting fraudulent documents about these electors? Why, you know, why isn't that criminal as well? Well, my criticism of the conduct that led to the spurring of the Russiagate frenzy was never based on any belief that any of it was necessarily criminal. Like it can be political misconduct. It can be unethical. It can be willfully deceitful without being criminal. I mean, I think that again is the point that needs to be underscored here. When you cross a threshold into criminal law or when you transfer political, you know, political disputation into the domain of criminal law, you're really, you know, to use another cliche, crossing a Rubicon that criminalizes what had been previously understood to be political conduct, however sleazy or unethical it may have been. So when, you know, uh, opposition research was submitted to the FBI, um, I'm not sure that that would have been necessarily defrauding the government. It would have been trying to kind of malevolently and with a political motive, try to steer the government to, do what you wanted to do, but it wasn't but it's like not defra- just, it wasn't it's a, not it wasn't just of But the it's government. not opposition research. It, it's fiction. It, it's fiction deliberately done to frame somebody as a Russian. Well, agent. if I think if it had been presented, let's say the Steele dossier, if it had been presented by someone who knew it wasn't true in order to get like a FISA warrant or something, that would make it criminal. Well, the, the one criminal uh, prosecution that Durham brought that was successful because the guy pleaded guilty was uh, Klein Smith. That was his name, right? And he actually did commit fraud in the way that you're 
suggesting here in that he was found to have uh, doctored an email that was then submitted for a FISA application. So he actually did commit fraud in that he willfully uh, portrayed a fabricated document as something that it wasn't in order to initiate a certain prosecutorial uh, process, in this case, surveillance, inc incredibly intrusive surveillance. So that's a criminal viola a violation or is, is you know potentially a criminal violation in the way that you know, submis submission of false opposition research, I don't think necessarily is. I mean, I think if that was a criminal violation, then it would have been a lot easier to probably root out. The point is that they were able to kind of wiggle their way around the law in order to um, kind of uh, initiate some of these legal actions or prosecutorial actions against uh, Trump. Um, so, no, I mean, I guess I'm hesitant in general, dispositionally, to resort to the invocation of criminal law in cases where it's ambiguous or it's not, you know, just very uh, straightforward. Because I think that's that's perilous on principle. Either way, I don't even think the analogy here holds with the the the, the supposedly fake electors. I mean, the document itself was not regarded in the minds of the people who signed them as quote fake. It was a truthful representation that they believed that there was a constitutional theory whereby. They could submit this alternate slate of electors, and then it would be the purview of the vice president presiding over this, this congressional proceeding on January 6th to count or not count that slate of electors based on his own discretion. Now, again, for the I million time, I, 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 I disputed that theory, but the idea that it's somehow just forgery. I mean, you think these people were all so deluded that they knowingly committed a forgery that they, they then didn't yeah. hide. They didn't bury it under, you know, hide it under their bed or something. They submitted it to, like in the case of Wisconsin, for example, the governor, the secretary of state, another body of the state legislature. Then, then they submitted it to Washington, the National Archives, and then also to the vice president. You think they did that knowing that it was a felony or that, yes. that they could have reasonably foreseen that it was felonious conduct? I think that's yes. preposterous. Let's hear from Jen. Actually yeah. Been, yeah. Yeah. The ones who did that initially have actually been charged with felonies. They he's said saying, so. He's saying, Jen, the, that you're trying to criminalize the kooky. He's saying it was kooky, but not criminal. Uh, no, because so um, there was something that was factually inaccurate in there, which is that John Eastman said that these documents that they were starting in, these certifications, I believe the phrase he said was dead on arrival. He knew they weren't going to be legal. But the whole point was it, it was that in the January 6th certification, they just wanted the chaos. They wanted the question in order to say, we have questions about these seven states. We have to set these electors aside. The chaos was the goal. They knew that these documents were not worth anything because they weren't actually certified by the governors. He also said in one of the emails, because again, we're not dealing with geniuses here, um, I just need you to possibly violate the, the Electoral Count Act. He actually said it. <laughs> so it's like, yes, I think they knew. And I think that's why Jack Smith is bringing this case, because I watched, I mean, it was insufferable, but I watched all 20 hours of that January 6th committee hearing. And just over and over again, you just hear these statements where they knew. Yes, I think they knew. And I don't think their theory was kooky. That's the other thing. Hmm. This was a two-page document that laid out there's a, a loophole we can exploit in the Electoral Count Act. Like they they really looked at Electoral Count Act and the Constitution and said, how can we weasel around these laws? Um, I don't think it's kooky at all. And I can actually follow where they were going and, 
and my concern with the whole thing was it could have worked. Had we had fewer Republicans that put country over party, had all Republicans worked with them, this could have worked. I don't think it's that kooky. Country over, but not Republicans putting country over party. My 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 heart is swelling with you know, memories of John McCain when he used. I'm not talking. I'm talking about Rusty Bowers okay, and Brad okay. Raffensperger, and they did not go along. Mike Pence. I mean, I have problems with the man, but he didn't go along with this, and that's a really good thing. Okay, I think hold, credit due. But hold on. You say that you just alleged that I said something that was factually inaccurate because you claim that John Eastman said that the submission of these electoral uh, slates would be dead on arrival. Now I don't know that quote off the top of my head. I'm just going to assume that it's a it's a true that quote. Is quote. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So. But him saying that is not an admission that the submit, submitting those electoral count slates is illegal. Dead on arrival is that it wouldn't be effective. It wouldn't be effective in achieving the goal of preventing the, the ultimate certification or the finalization of Biden's victory on, on January 6th. And the part not, where he not, says- not that it was a commission of a crime. The John part where Eastman's he says, theory, I need you John to- Eastman's theory, and, there, and this is a, a common theory, and you're saying it's actually a valid theory, which is makes it all the more strange why then you would want to criminalize it. Um, John Eastman's theory was that the Electoral Count Act was unconstitutional. This is from 1870 something. Six. Uh, 1876, the 1876 election was in the aftermath of which was the, when this was uh, created. So it wasn't exactly the Civil War era shortly after. It was in Reconstruction, but anyway. Um, I mean, a lot of people have argued over the years that the Electoral Count Act is unconstitutional because the Electoral Count Act codifies a role for Congress in choosing whether or not to certify these electoral votes that have been submitted by the states. And the idea is that only state legislatures have the power to determine what electoral votes are validly representative of the winner of the election in their state. So when you say it was dead on arrival, according to Eastman, I don't know if that's true or not, but I just uh, listened to a 90 minute interview that was published in June, so June of 2023, where he goes through in great extensive detail why he still is, is arguing that his theory about the permissibility of submitting these electors was valid because you're saying, oh, you know, there certain states were um, in violation of the 12th Amendment because, you know, the governor would have uh, unilaterally changed certain election procedure related to COVID. And that was, uh, you know, a dereliction of the state legislature having the sole authority to, to make those kinds of judgments. I don't agree with his logic there, again, uh, just to be clear for the millionth time, but I guess it's the two millionth time now. Um, but you know, again, it's such a it's it's such a leap to say that then that therefore constitutes a violation of criminal law, which had never been co- contemplated before as uh, you know a, a criminally uh, as leading one to incur criminal exposure if they propounded that theory, and that's a that's a bridge too far, I think. Well, I mean. His statements, like, I'm going to need you to violate the Electoral Count Act, whether he thought it was unconstitutional or not, it's still the law on the book. And it's exactly what he was exploiting with his plan, because on January 6th, Congress was given this role by the Electoral Count Act of counting these electors and deciding which slate would be the one that would be accepted. So whether he thinks it's unconstitutional or not, he looked at the law as it was, put forth this plan, which... He hasn't been indicted for that, but it is the carrying out of that plan that is the 
the crime. They're not being yet. charged with conspiring to violate the Electoral Count Act. The idea of Eastman's was that in technically violating the Electoral Count Act, it would then be taken up by the Supreme Court, who would then find in his vision of how this would trans, uh, how this would play out, they would then find or they would then rule the Electoral Count Act to be unconstitutional. That's not what was in his memo. His memo, they had two different plans. One was get those seven states set aside and therefore the electoral count would go in Trump's favor or it would go into the House of Representatives and they would vote Trump into the presidency. The Supreme Court wasn't a part of his plan. There were a bunch of plans contemplated. I mean, there's another memo that came out actually just yesterday by this guy, Kevin Cheesebro, I think oh, is, yeah, I is the that. name. Yeah, where, where, where the, the, electoral, the Supreme Court scenario is... Um, contemplated again it was it was not like this was a particularly uh, you know neatly organized endeavor so there were lots of theories that were floating around at any given time as to what they were trying to achieve or how they would achieve their ultimate end um but can we agree but, that the ultimate goal here was to keep a man in the presidency who had lost the election like is that much at least like how can that be legal their theory was that Biden had not rightfully won the election because but as changes, you said, they changes had, to election law, changes to election law, such as, you know, what they claim to have been the inadequate verification of signatures on mail and ballots or the improper extension of deadlines for when votes could be submitted or the inadequate security around like drop boxes. Yeah. That meant that Biden also Venezuela, was not also, certifiable also, as the winner. Venezuela, Venezuela, also Venezuela yeah. controlling all the machines. Yeah, and the Chinese that... And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Well, that was very interesting. Very interesting indeed. And thank you so much to Michael and Jen for joining us to have that debate. I think we really got to the heart of the matter, which... I will leave to the great Sade. This is what I think encapsulate this entire debate. Is it a crime? Is it a crime? There we go. Is it a crime? Is it a crime? So you think uh, Trump is just a smooth operator? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the question is, is he, is he a kook? Or is he a kooky criminal? Right. But yeah. I still don't know, but I really appreciate yeah. this debate. And uh, maybe we'll have more with actual lawyers next time, too. Yeah, that's, that's what we should move. Yeah, this was just round one, guys. In mm -hmm. fact, we should just make this whole show. The thing is, we don't disagree on a lot of things, or else we could make this whole show a proxy debate show. I mean, we have a, it could be proxy. If we disagreed, it would be really cool. We could have like a proxy, de, proxy war, proxy debate show. Yeah. Well, stay tuned for the next iteration of Useful Idiots. Yeah. We're constantly evolving and changing, so who knows? But uh, for more, go to usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. <laughs>